spinning back to the open side. Karim Bete, Optical here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Good evening and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that played in heaven. I'm Ando and welcome to a special midweek episode. With the Rugby World Cup final happening this weekend, we wanted to get deep and dirty into the World Cup experience and who better to get into the nitty gritty of the Rugby World Cup rather than Finn Morton from Rugby Pass. Finn, how are you, mate? Man, what's your bad? I'm blushing after that. Who better? Who better than me? Who how better good? to get dirty? I'm not sure that's if that's right. a good thing, but we're going to claim yeah, it as a, yeah. as a positive. <laughs> you been well? You're, you're over on the ground. So how you been, buddy? Sure am, mate. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fantastic. It's been uh, it's been a long haul uh, over here at the moment. So I've been mm-hmm. in Europe for close to 10 weeks now, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure everyone else would yeah, jump at that opportunity. But it's been, uh, it's been a long World Cup. Um, mm. But it all comes to a pretty exciting end um, on Saturday night here in Paris. So... You know, what's better than uh, from a southern hemisphere southern hemisphere perspective, other than obviously the Wallabies, of course, but All Blacks versus yeah. Springboks is uh, pretty <laughs> mouthwatering. That's what we want as rugby fans, isn't it? It is. We want it to be a high-quality match, and you just know that whatever happens on Saturday is going to be an epic, epic spectacle of quality rugby. Mm-hmm. And we have two of the best teams from the tournament that are going to be battling it out on Saturday night. So there's a lot of... There's a lot of narratives, there's a lot of stories, and a lot of questions around the teams and the performances and some of the some of the teams that didn't get through and history remaining as it is, particularly for teams like Ireland. But we'll dive into that in a moment. And why don't we just quickly say, ladies and gentlemen, tonight what we're going to do is Finn and I are just going to have a bit of a chat about what it's like to be a journalist, a rugby journalist on the ground in a Rugby World Cup. What's the experience like? Um, do you get sick of watching that much rugby and talking that much rugby? Does is the travel become? Do you get jaded at times, or is it always a rush? We're going to go through some of those types of questions before we then do a preview of the final and then talk through some of the really big changes with the introduction of the nation's championship which is coming uh beginning in 2026 so very very excited for all that we're going to be talking through tonight but finn why don't we start now you just said that you've been in europe now for about 10 weeks where in france have you particularly been have you have you basically been everywhere have you been following a particular team what's your journey been i was following the wallabies until they went home no, it's, uh, so, no, it's so not for long. Yep. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been pretty well everywhere. So um, I'll get it out of the way. It has to be a bit of a disclaimer. And uh, Kiwi, I'm New Zealand born. So, you know, and there's a big focus um, yeah, with my work uh, to, to cover the All Blacks and New Zealand rugby mm-hmm. as well. So um, mm-hmm. I went to all the All Blacks pool games as well as the Wallabies. And you sprinkle in a few games from Ireland, some of the Irish games and some of the French games as well. It was pretty unreal. Uh, pretty unreal. Yep. Five weeks or something. Literally some of the best rugby players you can see in the world. Um, but it was, yeah, it was pretty taxing as well. A fair bit of travel, a lot of time on trains. Um, yep. I wish the I wish the Wi-Fi was a bit better on those trains. Um, mm-hmm. Would have made life a bit easier. But, you know, again, no complaints, man. It's, uh, um, yeah, pretty well everywhere in France, especially down south for a bit. Um, yep. Lyon for a bit. I'm not going to try and pronounce some of these cities I've been in because I'm going to pronounce them very, very wrong. Um, but I can tell you that they're all fantastic. And on that, have you been able to get to um, many of the training sessions? Are you getting a lot of time with players and squads or is your role primarily match reports, going to the pre- and post-match press conferences and the like? What access are you actually doing on a kind of regular basis with the teams? 
Yeah, at this World Cup, it's probably been more of the latter in terms of match reports and, you know, the, the post-game press conferences. And obviously, you know, a couple of days before before the game, you'll have team naming press conferences and all that type of fun. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as I alluded to just before, you know, with all this travel I was doing throughout the pool stage, it was pretty hard to to not only stick with one team, but then go to all their, all their uh, trainings and whatnot. Because in the pool stage as well, teams have a base in a particular city, but that might not be where they're playing. On yep. a weekend, so you know, I could have been in Lyon, um, but the Wallaby, but the Wallabies might have been in Saint Etienne or something like that. You know, like it was. Uh, so it does make um, did make going to those uh, trainings during the week maybe a bit harder than it would be back yep. home. And at the same time, as much as you know, we both love rugby, we all need days off as well. You know, you want mm-hmm. to soak up what it's like to be here in France as well. It's my first time here, um, so you know, when I got the chance, you know, definitely did try and uh, seize the day with some days off, um, enjoy some baguettes. Uh, but yeah, mostly match reports and that type of thing. Uh, we do get access to players uh, post game as well uh, through mix zones, where mm-hmm. I think it's a minimum of ten players um, have to walk through from it, from both teams. Uh, but you know how willing they are to talk, or they might yep. effectively run through. You know that's uh, that's something we can't control. Uh, but we're there, and uh, yeah, had the chance to speak to some great players as well. So it's been great. It's been great. Most importantly from all of that, mate, um, what is the most useful French phrase that you've picked up so far? And can you grace us with some of your quality French uh, language? Mate, you're really putting me on the spot here. Yeah, I know, man. My, fr- I know. my French is appalling. My French is appalling. I, I, I can basically say hello, um, yeah, thank you, and, you know, goodbye, obviously, but also, you know, do you speak English? And that's basically the extent <laughs> of my Come on, how French. do you say do you speak English? I know how to, so I want to see if you do. Isn't it? Oh, maybe I've been saying it wrong. Parlez-vous Parlez-vous anglais, yeah. Good. Yeah, that's the one, that's the one. So, you know, it's <laughs> close enough, close enough. But it's... Uh, How do you say, I don't speak uh, I don't speak French? French? Do you know that one? No. Teach me. Je Teach me. Je ne parle français. Je ne parle français. Easy, mate. Here, mate. So, and yeah. that's what you do, and you just go, je ne parle français, uh, uh, parlez-vous anglais? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you just you, hope. Mate, you, you really hope. are a great teacher. Have yeah, you thought about so. that as a job? Thanks, man. I've thought about it once or twice um, over the last couple of years. But, yeah, yeah. mate, you talked, you spoke about time off there. So, obviously, there are so many matches that you're getting to. Things are probably, I, I, I expect they might have slowed down in terms of travel requirements yeah. over the last couple of weeks. Um, but days off. Now, the reason why I'm asking about days off is because I've seen a few Insta photos from some of the Stan Sports crew, and it seems that they've had a couple of nice uh, houses or villas or little chateaus in the uh, French countryside. Supposedly, supposedly, Horan has an excellent eye for a red wine as well. So what opportunity have you had to soak up the culture and the lifestyle within France? Jeez, well, nothing like that. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't <laughs> mind that. You know, in the country in France. No, it's... it's um. I think over the last three weeks, so throughout the whole knockout stage, I've been based in the base. Well, I've been based in Paris um, across two or three hotels, um, but I'm in the st- same hotel now for for two weeks. It's basically in the city, um, in the CBD, pretty close to. So, um, yeah, nothing like the country side of France, but it's uh, yep. it's a very obviously, you know, it's a brilliant place to be. I've been, you know, fortunate enough as well. I've got family over here actually. My uh, hey, awesome. my, my two siblings and parents. So, uh, you know, whenever I get the chance to try and catch up with them, and you know, it's. From my point of view, it's my first time here. So I'm, and I'm not a wine drinker. I'm not a wine drinker. So uh, my, you know, trying to get into the culture and that type of thing is, uh, you know, you've got to do all the tourist stuff first and mm-hmm. foremost, but then, you know, really trying to, um, I think, challenge yourself by going to some 
let's say, you know, authentic French restaurants and that type of thing and leaning on colleagues to speak the French because I clearly can't. <laughs> and have you seen the people within Paris and different cities and towns that you've been a part of really buying into the Rugby World Cup? Because, yes. I mean, we we can see it in the stadiums and in a little pan shots and, and montages that they that the Rugby World Cup organising team put out. Mm. But, I mean, yeah, you've been seeing that from your own two eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, I think, coming into this event, I was pretty excited about the idea of a European World Cup. Now, I was fortunate mm. enough, you know, I was at the World Cup four years ago in Japan, and that was incredible for a completely different reason um, or similar reasons. But this is, with all due respect to the Japanese World Cup, this seems like a step up. Um, and yeah, I think okay. the whole country has really embraced it in the best way possible. It's fantastic. Even you're walking down streets in Toulouse and Lyon, and, you know, there's banners for the World Cup everywhere. And this mm. is, they might not have a game there for another week or so, you know, and it's just been, you know, people who, you know, they, they ask you when you go to shops, I ordered a, a baguette last night, yesterday, it's coming coming home from work and uh, they went, oh, you're Australian? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, you hit the rugby. And I had a three, four minute conversation in broken English with this nice Frenchman about, um, yeah, about the rugby and obviously he shared his commiserations for the Wallabies and their, mm-hmm. their campaign at the World Cup. But, uh, you know, everyone everyone's getting behind it. You know, everyone wants to know, even leaving a press conference the other day, someone who I presume doesn't know a lot about rugby asked asked me, um, oh, who's in the final? Um, because yep. they didn't know, and but they want to know. You know, yeah, French, yep. it's clear that they love an event. You know, even walking to Stade de France, there's still they still have a sign-up um, that you can take photos with for Euro 2016. <laughs> um, you know, so like it's just you know you just know that when big events are on just like australia that the french come to play and they really bring the atmosphere and bring the noise and look and uh, that's pretty clear mate, during games as well i haven't been mm. to one game where the crowd it could be new zealand uruguay australia georgia whoever i mean to one game where the french national anthem hasn't broken out in the crowd and how and wonderful I, it's fantastic but i just can't you know, it's it's not part of our culture, I guess, back home. You know, we 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 embrace sport and live sport differently. It doesn't make it necessarily worse, but you know, they are so passionate, so vocal um, that you know it really does. You know, you have goosebumps uh, for basically the whole duration of the eighty minutes, and and that extends again to when you're walking around the streets as well. And I guess that ties in really well to where I wanted to go next was looking at some of the storylines coming into the Rugby World Cup and how those have eventuated. And particularly, I wanted to focus on Ireland and then France as the main two, because I think they're the ones whose supporters are most most disappointed by what's happened. You have the Wallaby supporters who are, I think, a bit um, a bit battle hardened might be a good way of expressing it. We're kind of used to failure at this point over the last couple of years. But this French team and the Irish team have been the pinnacle of rugby throughout the globe, northern and southern hemisphere, for the last three, four years. And everybody expected Ireland to be getting through at the very least into the semis and France very least to the semis and most likely the final. And so from your perspective and your opportunities to visit the games, how do you look back on the French run and what do you do to kind of come up with a story around or an understanding of how their event has turned out? Was the focus too much on Antoine Dupont? Um, Were they unable to handle the pressure of a home rugby world cup? What do you think is their story coming away now? 
Um, and I, I think if you go back to the first game of the World Cup as well, now if you go back mm-hmm. a wee bit, or even if you go back before then, again, I'd start yep. at the beginning of the World Cup, but I think we have to go further back, um, where, yeah, like you said, France had been with Ireland, the form team, for two years. And rightly so, I think, considering home field advantage, the favourites coming to this World Cup, as much as that pains me to say um, as a uh, as a Kiwi. Um, but, mate, um, then that first game, you know, that they're versing the All Blacks, start the France, and it's pumping. It, it really is. It was just one of the most incredible atmospheres I've ever seen. And France get up, hand the All Blacks their first ever loss in a pool match at a Rugby World Cup ever. I yep. think it – and yep. – and that was a statement. That was a statement because it's one thing to beat the All Blacks in Paris two years ago, but to beat them by 14 points at a Rugby World Cup, the All Blacks are, a, you know, they've shown it time and time again. And even throughout the rest of this World Cup, they're a beast that's hard to tame. But France did that and the crowd loved it. And then throughout the rest of that pool, uh, pool stage, except for a bit of a scare against Uruguay, um, they didn't look like a team who was going to falter, in my opinion. Correct, yeah. you know, even, even, you know, coming up against the Springboks in the quarters, you know, the Springboks, obviously, defending world champions. And, you know, with that comes a bit of a reputation. You know, they've, they've been there and done it before. France haven't, um, or at least this French team haven't. Uh, but then to lose the game as they did, because I thought they were the better team for a while yeah. against the box as well. And then things to just seem to just fall apart. Um, it looked like at stages, you know, you mentioned DuPont. He was trying to almost do things by himself. And... You know, this rugby's not an individual game. Not saying DuPont was playing it that way, um, but you know, you can't win a game, especially a rugby World Cup quarterfinal, on your own. Um, and you know, the weeks leading up to that, you're right with DuPont. You know, that was all the talk. The talk wasn't, God, this team's going so well. You know, French fans really believing that you know this could be the first time they even win the World Cup. Because uh, again, I think that was the expectation. That was the pass mark. But it was instead all the talk. All the talk was about. Antoine Dupont, you know, will he be wearing a Phantom of the Opera mask? Um, you know, you know, surgery. Is he going to recover in time and that type of thing? Um, and then they get to the quarterfinal, and unfortunately for France, um, I don't think they were beaten. I think they lost it. Yeah. Um, okay. Where I think, you know, they took the foot off the gas. Maybe when South Africa saw an opportunity to pounce, and the Springboks had enough, and obviously won an absolute thriller. Um, it might have just say as well the best game of rugby I've ever seen live. And I'm sure yep. watching it on TV, Ando, you'd agree, you know, and a very close second was the game a night before, you know, New Zealand, Ireland. But again, that, that French game, very disappointing. And, you know, you could see it on their faces after the game. There was obviously photos and videos of DuPont, you know, incredibly sad, gutted, you know, almost broken by this World Cup exit, World Cup exit that, you know, nobody saw coming. Um, and especially for a player who's quite literally physically given himself to this tournament because this was France's tournament and they're going to be a very good team for a long time to come if you look at their under-20s program but yep. you know they France won't have a chance to win a home world cup again for a long long time you know it's been yep. nearly 20 years since their last world cup here 100 percent. and uh, you just think how it would have been different with someone like uh, Roman Entomac yeah. uh, at 10 if he hadn't had the uh, ACL injury. Was yeah, it? yeah. I thought Jalabert was very good though. It was. You know, um, but Entamac is one of the world's best players for a reason, mm-hmm. um, and especially his combination with the Pont. You know, they both play club rugby together at Toulouse, and I, I believe they've been playing together since you know they were quite young as well. So, yeah, that's a combination you can't buy. You know, if you look at the All Blacks ten years ago, Conrad Smith, Marnoni, you know, 
it just helps when you have combinations of players who play club rugby together and mm-hmm. can carry that confidence, belief, um, and understanding of each other into the test arena as well. 100%, 100%. And so I guess that takes us across when we're talking about two of the best games of rugby in recent memory. The other one is Ireland, New Zealand. And for me, actually, um, I think I had more skin in the game for Ireland, New Zealand. Because I I don't know if I'm a traitor to the Australian cause, but um, I'm actually cheering New Zealand on, and I have been since the quarterfinals. Um, playing, I'm I'm a relatively newcomer into the Australian rugby scene insofar as I haven't actually been an Australian rugby fan since like we were winning. So <laughs> um, I've come to be able to appreciate the quality of so many of the New Zealand players. And um, I mean, what I'm, I've said it previously, some of my favourite players at the moment are um, Ned Hannigan, obviously, Ryan Lonergan, but just at the same level of quality or maybe a tiny bit below is Artie Sevilla and Will Jordan as two of my favourite uh, players yeah. that I just absolutely love to watch. Yeah. And for me, I was punching the air, cheering in the final moments when Sam Whitelock got that turnover Mm. to win the game for New Zealand. It was just absolutely incredible. Was it 39 phases of defence they've been able to hold out? The drama of that moment and the tension of that moment was so immense that for me, that was the game of the tournament. How was it for you trying to um, hold perhaps a sense of journalistic impartiality with the fact that you're a uh, through and through Kiwi and you actually yeah. absolutely love them. Um, I'll admit to you and the pick and drive listeners as well. And uh, um, I let out a very unprofessional cheer. I think when Sam White <laughs> got that turnover um, and it was impossible not to, um, I was yeah. sitting next to an Irishman, uh, a colleague of mine and, you know, there was banter before the game uh, and even up until half time. But I think during the second half, I don't think we spoke. Um, And then the tough thing for me was I think I was doing player ratings for Ireland, but I physically couldn't. I was shaking, like (laughs) physically shaking. Like, and this isn't no exaggeration. I couldn't type physically until full time. Um, And then I think I just, yeah, pulled something out of nowhere really. Um, But yeah, that that Sam Whitelock turnover after I think it was 37 phases was just absolutely Mm Unreal. One of the individual players of the tournament, and keep in mind, Nando, that was a that was a man, a two-time World Cup winner through to his third final, who has played. That was his 151st Test match, yep. and he's doing that. Yep. I. That's incredible, and it's it's um you know it's something which in the All Blacks jersey has never been done before. Um, but for him to do that, and he's not a journeyman by any means. You know, he's he deserves to be in this team, not by reputation or legacy. He's a good player, and he showed that in that moment. Um, I think Artie Severe, I think it was a phase or two earlier, was quite unlucky. Yep. He was over the ball, mm-hmm. um, and I thought I thought he probably did enough to get it again. Is this journalistic? Uh, is this me? Is this Finn the Journo speaking or Finn the fan? I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's a bit of both. Um, but with that clip, you know, you saw Artie get over the ball. He falls down, starts yelling at the touch. He forgot who it was, and Aaron Smith. Uh, quite, get up, Artie. Yeah, get, get up, up Artie. Get up, get up. And Artie goes, oh, yeah, right. But the thing about Ireland, uh, I think in that last 37 phase, they had the ball for about four minutes. And it was some of the, probably the, the longest four minutes of the lives of anyone who was in that stadium that night. And I'm sure watching from home back in New Zealand, mm-hmm. Ireland, around the world, general rugby fans, um, it was thrilling. But Ireland looked incredibly tired. Yeah. I thought. Um, they they had a few opportunities to break the All Blacks defensive line and genuinely 
you know, really, really threatened that try line. You know, it's all well and good that they got close to the 22 or into the 22 eventually, but they had some line break opportunities. But you saw it a few times where players were walking into tackles, like literally walking into tackles. Like it was like if you play, you know, junior rugby league and, you know, you've got those surrender tackles where you basically go, oh, you know, well, you've done an abstraction. And in rugby and, and you go, I don't want to give away a penalty, so I'll drop to the ground. It was kind of like that. Yep. But it was a World Cup quarterfinal, four points separating it with so much history on the line considering what happened in New Zealand last year. And, yeah, I, I, and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that I think 10 of the Ireland starting 15 or t- match day 23 played every match um, yep. at that World Cup leading up to that moment, whereas, you know, if we switch to New Zealand for a second, I think they've played this World Cup a lot smarter than most teams. I, mm-hmm. I don't think they approached the World Cup opener as the be-all end-all. And that's a really weird foreign concept for the All Blacks to take on. But I think they knew, and Ian Foster, you know, effectively, you know, suggested this as well in post-match press conferences, saying that it wasn't the be-all end-all for the All Blacks because they're going to have to verse Ireland or South Africa most likely in the quarterfinals. And this is way back at the start of August, he's saying this. Uh, sorry, start of September. Um, and then the All Blacks slowly built up throughout the pool stages. You know, they, they beat Italy by... 80 points, 70 points, and that yep. was no fluke. That was a team who yep. was building. So by the time they got to that quarterfinal, they were basically peaking. Whereas I think Ireland, unfortunately, dare I say it, had already peaked. And that's one of the um, – it's one of the ease I – don't, I don't know if it's easy to say that, that teams have peaked prior to yeah. a knockout match. Because, I mean, you can kind of label that accusation against any team that loses a knockout final. Um, it's it's a hard one to follow. But when you, when you look at New Zealand's form going through the competition, they um, obviously lost to France 13 to 27, beat Namibia 71 to 3, Italy 96 to 17, Uruguay 73 nil. And so there's been that huge amount of confidence and momentum that they had coming into it. And whilst Ireland obviously went through undefeated up until that point as well, I don't think I was ever as convinced by the quality of their performances throughout those matches as well. Uh, so it's it's hard to kind of rate that, but I do just want to take the opportunity now to shift into the final that's coming up this weekend. Now, my hope was that we would have had team lists by now, but uh, unfortunately, no, we don't have team lists at the time of recording, which is uh, 8 p.m. on Wednesday night. But if we jump into the actual expectations for the game, New Zealand, South Africa, this will be whichever team wins will be... They'll have won four World Cups, won the most World Cups in a row. Um, give me some more stats. Throw some more stuff at me. Sure, you've written about more 12 stats. articles about well, this. I should know. Um, obviously, <laughs> you know, their first final since 95 with these two yep. teams are coming together. And yep. I, I think that's that's important as well. Um, you know, I think this is the greatest rugby rivalry in the sport. You know, these are two mm-hmm. teams which have incredible respect for one another off the field. But once they step on the park, it's it's a gladiatorial contest. You know, and these are rugby warriors who really want to give it their all for their countries because it's, you know, it's without getting too poetic about it, Andrew, it's, you know, it, it's more than it's more than a game, more than a sport, I think, for, for Kiwis and South Africans as well. You know, it's a it's national identity um, yep. and it's, you know, it, it's quite a beautiful thing, I think, that, you know, rugby, a sport like this can bring a nation together. And we're going to have yep. two very passionate fan bases coming together um, at Stade de France on Saturday night, the biggest game of all. First team to, uh, 
yeah, who will be the first country uh, to win a fourth Rugby World Cup title in men's? Uh, and then, you know, South Africa looking to become the uh, second nation to go back to back. And of course, they're coming up against the team who did it first. And that wasn't too long ago. Um, you know, this is the All Blacks' fifth final in Rugby World Cup history and uh, their third and four World Cups. It's, it's really we're biased because we live in the Southern Hemisphere, Ando. And again, mm. it would be great from maybe, you know, from an international point of view to see the likes of Ireland and France, you know, really challenge this tournament like we'd spoken about. But, you know, to see these two teams in the final, this is rugby. And this is absolutely everything fans could ask for. Um, you know, we've got fantastic matchups as well, individually. Um, Damien Diolande versus Geordie Barrett in the midfield is actually, is actually a... a I wouldn't say it's the matchup, but it's a matchup I'm very excited about. I think Geordie Barrett's the most important All Black. Yep. Um, he's the glue to their defence, and it's crazy to think uh, that he wasn't an inside tenor at Test Rugby 14 months ago. He only mm-hmm. uh, made his debut, so to speak, in the number 12 jumper. I think it was against the Wallabies uh, last yep. September. So for him to go from that and then impress in the end of season two, and by the end of that end of, end of season tour, had already proven to selectors and effectively the rugby world that. He was not only the best number 12 in New Zealand, but genuinely in the conversation across the world. You know, this is a guy who he made, I think he attempted 22 tackles um, the other day for an inside centre in, yep. against Argentina in the semi, which is which is the most of any All Black. Um, he missed five, but let's stick with the positives. Um, <laughs> it, he, it was he, rated as his best defensive performance um, after the game, and they yeah. spoke about it at length as well. So, I mean, at inside and outside centre, you've got so many hard decisions that you're having to make yeah. that um, missing a few when you have that volume is almost inevitable. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, you know, and especially it was just that type of game for the All Blacks. So I don't think it really... I don't think it really mattered too much in the end, did it? You know, 44-6 scoreline, uh, a couple of missed tackles. You know, that's just uh, that's the way it goes uh, sometimes. But, you know, I think it's also a reflection, Ando, of the progress this All Blacks team has made. Um, You know, I think that series lost to Ireland last year Mm. has already defined this All Blacks team, but it might not be a bad thing. I think it was a catalyst for change and change that they needed before the World Cup. You know, Scott Robinson will be great coming in. But I don't think a change of coach was was necessarily the change that the All Blacks needed if they wanted to be in this position that they are now. Um, so let's let me hold you on that then for a second. What change do you think has actually come about within the All Blacks from that series loss at home first ever? Yeah, um, Scott McLeod. I, I think you know he's obviously been there before, and I'm yeah I'm yep. not suggesting he wasn't, but. Uh, he, he spoke about it the other day about how they've changed their defensive schemes. Uh, they've gone from being, I think they were be- very man-focused. That's how they defended in New Zealand rugby, even in Super Rugby as well. Whereas they've now changed their defensive scheme so that they uh, defend the ball, you know. And you know, so what that means above <laughs> my pay grade, but you know, yep. like it, it, it's certainly more, you know, be more slide defense and um, you know, covering and uh, look. Clearly, it's working. You know, whatever changes they've made, if you know, I'm sure that's not the only change. You know, Joe Schmitz had a more uh, vocal role as an assistant coach over the last, um, let's say, 16 months. Jason Ryan, I think he's been a great addition to the All Blacks as well since he's come in. Um, but, you know, defensively is where the All Blacks are, ha- have made their stride and have made their mm-hmm. mark at this World Cup. They've made 421 tackles, I think, um, in their last two games. against Most of those were against Ireland especially in those 37 phases towards the end in that last 10 minutes. Um, but um, defensively, look, it's cliche, 
I want to throw it out there. Defense, win, defense wins championships. He's and done it. Know. He said it. Everyone, take a shot at home. Take it. Oh, is there a cliche shot? Okay. All right. No, but there should oh, be. And if there is, it should be. Um, yeah. oh, if you if you read my writing, you'll uh, you'll be black <laughs> out by noon. Um, but it's uh, no, it's uh, I think it's um, it's pretty obvious for the All Blacks that this is the difference for them. Mm. You know, because mm. it's no secret that this All Blacks team team can attack. You know, they've got Richie Mwanga at ten. Jordy Rabbit 12 and Bowden out the back and a little no-name called Will Jordan on the wing. Um, haven't and heard and you haven't before. even mentioned Mark Talea or Rico exactly. Gulani, like exactly. genuinely world-class players exactly. that are second in the list when you're listing out attacking threats. Yeah, and it's, oh, they are, they are. And, um, but it's just, it, it, it's quite crazy that so many people wrote off the All Blacks and, you know, with all, you know, I guess it made sense going off that Twickenham lost at the box. You know, that was the first mm-hmm. test I covered when I got here to Europe. Um, and that was, again, from speaking as a fan here, it was pretty miserable, um, speaking as a Kiwi. But, you know, that 35-7 to 7 loss to the box at Twickenham, um, everyone was ready to ride off the All Blacks because they had an off night. Keep in mind, you know, I think they'd flown out. I'm going to make an excuse on their behalf. I flew out. <laughs> here we go. This is becoming a preview just for the All Blacks. I'm loving it. Let's you go. Should. Yeah. No, I'll get to the box in a second. But the All Blacks flew out about 16, 16 hours before I did to England. And I was still jet-lagged on game day. So, yep. you know, but I think the box are a very good team. Um, mm. You know, they've shown that. They've had two one-point wins in a row. And um, But can they back that up? Uh, they yeah. did look a bit tired against England. Yeah, um, they did. But... At the same time, um, just as they did against France, the Springboks showed why they are the defending world champions. And that was, you know, that try to Snyman towards the end. And then, uh, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, the Andre Pollard penalty, uh, where he looked very cool, calm and collected, uh, slotting that from near 50. Um, this is a team who knows how to win close games. And if they can keep it close, the box are more than a chance. Uh, but if the All Blacks are allowed to play running rugby, um, especially early on, uh, then I think I'd have to lean towards the All Blacks. Yeah, look, it's a really tough. Um, the tough one to consider how it is that South Africa are particularly going to come away with this game because I actually agree. I don't think they have been particularly um, on top of their game at their best mm. over the last two matches. And they've looked at times lacking in, I say cohesion in terms of a lot of drop ball and um, a lot of inaccurate play. The game against England, say what you want to say about the weather and the conditions, but the quality of the play from both teams I thought was actually really poor and their ability to execute and take opportunities that were put in front of them was really poor. And when you look at the statistics, just purely from a stats point of view, New Zealand should be winning this game. Should be winning this game. Now, I'm going to read out a few for you just for the listeners as well, just because it's helpful. Um, New Zealand are topping the red zone efficiency. So every time they get into the red zone, they're scoring 3.89 points. And they have the third best red zone entries at 12.7 per game throughout the whole of the Rugby World Cup. They have the most line breaks per game, 13.5. 61% of the carries are over the game line. And 78% of their possessions result in a positive outcome. So they're not giving away a penalty, knocking a ball on, um, having it yeah. turned over, something like that. 96% scrum reten- ruck retention with 94% scrum success and 98% line-out success. That set-piece platform is incredible. And just means they've barely been challenged. It, they got through, I think, don't directly quote me on this, but the pool stages with 100% scrum and line-out rep. Um, percentage it was just incredible 
I'm going to quote you there. That's that's my next article. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you've got to check uh, if it's right or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yep. They um, certainly, I think through the Irish game, um, I don't think they had certainly lost the scrum on their own feet. Um, and yep. their line out, you know, bizarrely for New Zealand rugby, was now probably the best in the world, was how it was mm-hmm. looking. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly up there, obviously, the Springboks are always going to be good. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, the All Blacks were doing things that, are almost I don't want to say un-all blacks, but you know it's it's they've, they've revolutionised their game ender. Yeah, it's not a typical area of strength that you would expect. It's not fitting the stereotype of what we know are the national no. strengths of particular teams. Like, you know, South Africa is going to be good in a line out and good in a scrum and abrasive in a carry. You know, New Zealand are going to be excellent on counter attack opportunities. Yeah. Just as a typical like DNA of how that nation plays rugby. And yet, you're right. Um, New Zealand have added that line out efficiency to their game but the area that i'm particularly surprised in is their scrum efficiency as well because i do not rate the props for new zealand and i haven't rated them for the last kind of 12 to 18 months no no i don't i don't think they're well i don't think they're like world class top in the world in a position so you're you're talking about the groups and lomax the starting props yeah yeah. and And tamaiti williams fletcher null and Fletcher Nippalala yeah. and yeah. yeah, look, I'm I'm not claiming that they're bad. I'm not saying that, but when I put them up against some of the the renowned props throughout world rugby in some of the other top teams, I think that those other teams may look at the front row of the All Blacks and think we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity, and it just hasn't worked out that way in any way, shape, or form, which has really surprised me. And maybe I've just underdone my expectations of the All Blacks props um i will admit i don't like ethan de because he was mouthy towards taniello tupo a couple of years back and i've never liked him since then <laughs> so, do you know where he's from uh isn't he australian he is yeah i know but i don't How's like that? Him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, how, how can you say literally 30 seconds ago you know this team have you know probably the best scrum at the world cup and yep. but you don't rate their front rows is it do you consider i didn't it rate i didn't rate their front rows didn't rate okay okay I, I think De Groot was fantastic against the Pumas, and I think yeah. when he's when he's on song, I think he's he's bordering on world class personally. Um, yeah, okay. And uh, hey, debate's good, debate's good, but it's uh, <laughs> I I do think there is a bit of a concern with New Zealand rugby once Ofatonga Fasi and Nepo Lalala obviously leave. Um, yeah. I think Tonga Fasi, I think he's sticking around. I'm actually not too sure about him. Um, I should know, uh, but. Uh, you know, you've got four very young props in the All Black mm. setup at the moment, and prop, you know, being a prop, that's an old man's game. You know, you, you get better as you get older because it's all about experience. You know, it's why James Slip has gone to four World Cups. You know, it's uh, crazy. it's crazy. It's, but that being said, there, there is a, uh, you know, there's always um, there's always an exception to every rule, Ando, and mm. I think Angus Bell. If we loop back to the Wallabies just for a second, because let's not forget about them. Um, I think Angus Bell is genuinely world class. Yep. And for a player who, you know, not too long ago at the start of the Eddie Jones era wasn't starting uh, to then uh, replace the then co-captain James Slipper and then come into this World Cup, he was, for me, uh, clearly probably the Wallabies' best player at this World Cup. Agreed. And one of the few players who was a real shining light for the Wallabies uh, during a pretty underwhelming campaign. But that's that's a whole segue. It's a whole, whole other podcast. <laughs> it, it completely is. Well, why don't we stick with South Africa um, from this point? And 
if you look at their statistics, their attacking stats are genuinely rubbish comparatively to New Zealand's attacking stats. Um, so as in a couple of quick examples, only the seventh in the whole competition for carries over the game line, over 52% of their carries get over the game line. 37% um, of their collisions, they get dominance in, so that's 13th overall. Um, I haven't bothered quoting kind of red zone efficiency and red zone entries because they're really low and they're, they're quite poor comparatively to New Zealand. The thing that they do have going for them is their discipline has been excellent and the dominant tackles when they do make dominant tackles have been relatively high um, on a per match basis. So from that point of view, it shows that their attacking game has not been functioning and flowing as well as they would be hoping and expecting it to, but defensively they have been very sound as well. Um, any quick comments on that? I think, um, well, just jumping straight to, I think their semi-final last week, um, their first, their three tries, their first three tries. No, sorry, it was against, sorry, against France. Against mm -hmm. France, sorry. It's, it's all blending into one at the moment. Against France, I think their first three tries were all counterattacks, especially, yes. you know, Chesney Colby. So you know, good. He, he was fantastic, don't yep. get me wrong. But they weren't necessarily creating a lot of things off their own back. It was a lot Correct. of loose ball, you know, and you give it, if you give the ball to Chesney Colby in space, that's five points every day of the week. Um, so I'm not surprised that they racked up points that way. Uh, but will they have the same opportunity against the All Blacks? Hmm. When you look at the rock success that the All Blacks have been having and the hmm. successful completions, you have to think that those opportunities are going to be few and far between for the Bockies. And, I mean, that that Chesham Colby try that you're referring to, that was the um, grubber through from yep. um, Jesse Creel. And that was just beautiful counter-attacking rugby. One yeah, of the I best agree. tries I've seen yeah. South Africa score in the entire World Cup and just for a really long time. I watched it and I had I replayed it a bunch of times because it was just perfect in terms yeah. of the turnover, the playing out wide, Jesse Creel straightening the attack, the looking for the vision, and then the kick through was just next level good. Um, and so you need to think, well, are they going to get those opportunities against New Zealand? Probably some. And so it'll be a question of whether they can execute on those opportunities. And so with Jason Colby and uh, Arenze on the other wing, you think that they, they, they've got some class and they've got speed. But at the same time, those are two of the smallest players in world rugby. And who are they going up against as their opponents? Mark Talea and Will Jordan. Talea physically dominates over both of the um, towers and is dominant over both of them. So I wonder... I wonder how that matchup is going to be playing out. Any any read or thoughts on that one? I think first and foremost, as a man who confidently stands at five foot eight, I don't think there's anything short anything wrong with being short in rugby, um, from my <laughs> point of view. But no, I, I think um, the New Zealand wingers are definitely bigger. Um, even Will Jordan, you know, I've yep. you know spoken to, or been around him a few times at uh, mixed zones after games, and you know, he's a big guy. He's a big guy, and um, but Mark Talia, you know, he's he's um, the best way possible, just a rugby freak, isn't he? You know, in terms of what he can do, you know, I think he broke, he broke 15 tackles against the Pumas. And the box are going to bring a very different challenge. Don't get me wrong, but there's something about Talia's running style. He's both – this is going to contra contradict myself here, but he's both lanky and strong, like lanky and buff. Mm. Um, mm. But yet he can just slide off tackles, beat tackles, and really make some defenders look like schoolboys. Um but that being said, you know, if you look at the wingers, you know, compare the two the two on each team, very different skill sets. 
but at the end of the day, this is the All Blacks versus Springboks. Uh, I think, uh, you know, all players are going to be up for it. Um, and I'd actually be quite surprised if we see these players get a lot of opportunities in space. I think it's going to be quite yep. a tight tussle. Uh, let's say one in the pack. I think that's where it's going to be one. So, um, yep. up front. And on that point, um, one of the really challenging areas for South Africa is their hooker stocks and their hooker situation. So they have obviously had um, major injury Malcolm Marks go down pre, pre-tournament. And so you've had Bongi Mbanambi, who's been playing the majority of the minutes. He's played 80 minutes last week and then 75 minutes the week before. He had the previous game off with Dean Fury kind of stepping in for the match against Tonga. And prior to that, um, Bongi had played most of the minutes for most of the games. So we know how um, mercurial, mercurial he is. We know how pivotal he is both as a leader and as a physical presence and um, quality hookup within the team. I wonder if minutes are going to come into the equation here. Has he played too much over the last few games to be able to keep up that type of intensity for a long period of time um, in a Rugby World Cup final? I think so. I think it has to, Ando, because you look at, you know, whenever you see a hooker or any front rower play 65, 70, 75 minutes, let alone 80, um, you know, you give them credit because you know that's a big shift. You know, if you've ever played rugby, especially in the forwards, you know how tiring it can be, let alone, you know, when you have a bit more, let's say, muscle on you um, in the front row. Um, it's, you know, I imagine it's a whole lot tougher. Um, and, but it's kind of like I said before, um, I think the Springboks looked a bit tired, uh, especially mm. in the, you know, against England. You know, you mentioned the weather before. It was sprinkling, but it wasn't too bad, to be honest. It was, it was wet. It was, it would have been dewy out in the field and stuff, but, um, this is a team who looked tired and they were off because they weren't up for well, they were up for it, but they, they weren't, you know, again, I, I think they were still trying to recover from the French game. Um yep. but yeah, especially as a hooker, um those are those are long minutes, long minutes. And you know, if you try and play 80 minutes against the All Blacks, because you have to, because their their hooker stocks are pretty thin otherwise. Um yeah. you know, they probably he probably has to play 80 minutes, considering, you know, Bongi is also I think he's their vice captain when Khaleesi goes yep. off. And Khaleesi's been going very early in the second half, um, which has always surprised me. Uh, Personally, um, you know, I I like having your cap. I like it when teams have your captain out there for 70-odd minutes. Um, um, But Khaleesi coming off 45 minutes, you know, that's that's part of the bomb squad and whatnot that they've got going, the Springboks. But, um, yeah, so it's going to be very interesting to see if they can just lift one more time because that's all it takes, Ander. It's, you know, you're 80 minutes away from Rugby World Cup glory. You know, a lot was said about the Springboks during COVID when they couldn't, you know, play rugby championship and then they came back and they were losing to Australia and they didn't look like the Hey, hey, man. Hey, hey don't say it like sorry. that. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Forgot. Um, no, but you know what I mean? Like, this is a team who, you know, they, they're the world champions, but they weren't playing like mm-hmm. it necessarily for a while. Um, but just like the All Blacks coming off their Ireland series last year, they can right some wrongs um, on Saturday night. They just have to lift one more game. Yep. And so let's take the opportunity now to put our picks in. Okay. So we need to kind of nail our colors to the mast and say, who are we going to be picking and by how much? Okay. So I'll start things off to give you a moment to think as a guest. So I am going to be going with New Zealand and I actually think it will not be as close as um, some finals could be. And I'm going to say by about 14 points. 
14 points. Wow. So two well, tries. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I went on New Zealand radio last week and I said, um, radio New Zealand, I said New Zealand would win the final by 50. And I've had about a week to think about that and I think that might be a bit ambitious. Um, and this is before... <laughs> And this is before the semi-finals. Um, I got a bit carried away, um, but I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to say the All Blacks by ten. Uh, it, it's going to be, it's going to be close. Like I said, it's a, it's a war between these two teams, and it's a Rugby World Cup final. Um, these players, I'm sure, some of their earliest memories of World Cups would have been '95. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is this is everything you could want and more. One hundred percent. Well. With that picking done, I don't think it's going to have surprised anybody that we've both gone for New Zealand, considering what we said earlier within the show. But why don't we move over now and finish off with some of the really big news which has come out from World Rugby today in regards to a couple of things. It's the alignment of the men's and women's international calendars and the creation of the nation's championship. Now, I'll say the basics because um, I've unfortunately been at work today and haven't had as much time to get across all the details as I would want to. But it's literally your job, so I'm hoping you know a bit more than me so nation's championship hoping <laughs> nation's championship kicking off in 2026 it is essentially the six nations in europe combined with the rugby championship and fiji and japan in the southern hemisphere and what will be happening is it'll be a cross pool competition happening within a july and the november windows starting in 2026 so the british and irish lions can happen and then we get into it in 2026. And there'll be different, there'll be Division 1 and Division 2, but Division 2 won't start until 2030. Um, and the Tier 2 comp um, will not have promotion and relegation with Tier 1 until 2032. Is, is that most of the detail correct? Um, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, so, like you said, Six Nations teams, Rugby Championship teams, the two other teams haven't actually been confirmed. Um Oh, okay. Yes, it's not 100% confirmed that it's going to be Japan or Fiji at this point. Uh, but Sanzar do have, um, yeah, they, they have the choice, I think, effectively, where they, they get to decide who those other teams are. Uh, yeah. Two pools of six. Um, yeah. And from what I understand, uh, you'll have your Six Nations pool and your Southern Hemisphere pool, North South. Uh, and like I said, three cross games, you play three at home. So if you're the Wallabies, you'll play three of the Northern teams at home during July. And then during November, you'll play uh, three of the Northern teams away. And then whoever's at the top of each pool um, at the end of those six games will then meet in a final, um, mm -hmm. which was last night. It was suggested at a press conference that that final will be played at the Northern Hemisphere's team stadium. Uh, so... Whoever, say, England top their pool, um, then, yeah, the final will be at Twickenham. Why Why Northern Hemisphere? Well, because the, the second round of games, so to speak, will be played in the north. Uh, oh, that's right. So, yeah, so it, it just makes it easier than having to fly England and New Zealand back to New Zealand, say. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. It, I, yeah, that sounds rubbish. <laughs> So the final every year will be in the Northern Hemisphere. I believe that's the plan at this stage. Um, it's mm, yeah. So, okay. but but um, yeah. That that's one of the changes that World Rugby made. I think you mentioned the second division as well. Uh, I'm yep, personally correct. big fan of this now. Yeah, me too. You know, I you know, there's a lot of people who've been speaking. You know, been talking down about this concept. You know, trying to uh, suggest that World Rugby's made a big mistake, and I, I think they're thinking far too in the short term. Now, these, you know, if we want to call them Tier 2 nations, um, 
haven't been playing the tier one teams enough in the past, but this changes, you know, this is going to change now. Thanks to Lions, you know, during Lions years, World Cup years, um, there's going to be, I think, 50% increase in crossover games between tier one and tier two teams, yep. uh, which is fantastic. And it gives them a competition as well where, you know, in not too long from now, they're going to have the opportunity to get promoted and play with the, the big teams in international rugby. It gives them a logical pathway um, to actually prove themselves prove themselves as worthy of being in the conversation because at the moment, you know, even looking at this World Cup, you know, there's there's four teams who realistically could have won it and then there are another four probably who, you know, could have, you know, caused an upset here and there. But well, but the, the game, the international game, I guess, was never going to grow as well as it will now um, yeah. with, the way, with the way it was. Um, yeah. And even, you know, I think there were question, there's a question asked about it yesterday at a press conference with Sybil Beaumont, Alan Gilpin, about, uh, you know, the likes of Kenya, you know, Uganda and, you know, stuff. How 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 can they work their way up? And I, I think there's going to be regional tournaments, I think, for them to mm. try and get promoted into Division 2. And then, you know, who knows? They could be in Division 1. It's, yep. my opinion, it's, it's only a good thing. And, uh, and it ties into that broader concept that is already being showcased in the WXV so you've got three tiers in the women's competition, which is Correct. kicking off and being played right now. Um, Wallaroos are playing on Saturday night. And so yep. I, in terms of the broad concept of tier one, two, three, or tier one and two, and then potentially regional or a tier three down the track, I'm actually super supportive of it. Uh, and we've got to remember that this is only going to be for um, non-British and Irish Lions and Rugby World Cup years. So you're still going to have 50% of the annual competitions where there's an opportunity for um, Australia to do a tour of the Pacific Islands or to have Samoa, Tonga and Fiji come and have a series of matches. Like it's, there's still that opportunity for um, teams to be able to organise matches uh, with, with the supposed tier two nations as well. The thing I, look, I can understand. Um, I can understand the reasoning for the final being played in the northern hemisphere because of the travel and logistical arrangements. Um, I get it. It sucks, and I think that I wonder if there's going to be more conversation around whether or not um, they alternate the mid-year and the end-of-year test locations, whether or not the southern hemisphere teams. Um, travel in the June-July window and then stay at home in the November window or something like that just to vary the final location. It'd be fantastic, you know, to have, you know, England versus Australia or France versus Australia or Suncourt or Sydney, yep. you know, like, you know. Suncourt, but, mate, will actually win there, not not Sydney. That's right. That's what it has yep. to be. It's a fortress. It's a fortress that is far too forgotten, underappreciated. It's time Brisbaneites, including myself, need to take a stand and, and go to the know, bring back home. Play all three Lions games there in 2025. No, no thank you, game. but just the third one. Thanks. <laughs> just the one. Um, but, and I, I think as well, um, World Rugby's bigger picture about what they're doing in terms of, you know, you, you spoke about an opportunity there, and the word I would have used is growth, you know, an opportunity mm. to, you know, to grow the game. You know, I think, you know, that's what's most significant here. Um, you know, you look at a rebranded Pacific Nations Cup as well. Uh, that That's... That's a huge step as well. Uh, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Japan, USA, and Canada um, from next year are going to play an annual tournament. Um, which you know, the final there will be a final series. It gives all three, all six nations, a minimum of three extra games a year, 
which is fantastic. You know, you, Sevens is rebranded. You mentioned the WXV. You know, I, I, I honestly think rugby's heading in the heading in the right direction. Um, yeah. And you know, we've also you know we've got twenty four teams at the next World Cup as well. Just a just a little known, just a, just a small thing. Another four teams. You know, another four teams like Portugal. How good how good would that be? You know, if we yep. could see some underdogs, you know, playing at their first World Cup in ages, um, as it was in Portugal's case, coming on and you know, really challenging the big teams. And the best thing, Ando, about a 2014 World Cup with a round of 16 is touch wood. It means the Wallabies will make it out of the group. <laughs> Look, let's touch wood and hope that that's going to be the case. Um, there are a couple of other things that we should just mention that came with the announcement. Um, the 2027 Rugby World Cup in Australia has been pushed back by a couple of weeks in order to enable yes. there to be a bit more clean air from the AFL and NRL final series. So I think that's a really good commercial decision. Um, it's just it's the logical choice. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough yesterday before this press conference at Roland Garros, of all places, it was quite cool. Mm. Um, if you're a tennis fan, uh, to speak to Hamish McLennan, along with a couple of other journos for a couple of minutes. And um, yeah, he he was all for this. You know, it's a massive um, it's a massive thing for Australian rugby, but also the Rugby World Cup itself, I think, to not be competing directly with the NRL and AFL finals. Um, because, you know, Obviously, you know, AFL is going to sell out the G and I can't imagine too many Geelong fans are going to be too interested in, you know, the Rugby World Cup if the Cats are playing in a, for a flag. Yep. So, you know, it, it's that type of thing. And the same in Rugby League if if by then Penrith are going for, what, be like a seven-peat or something, if they can, if they're that good. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's a great thing for rugby in Australia as well. You know, more meaningful games actually with, with the... With the um, it hasn't been called the Nations League yet, but that's I guess what it's been informally um, known as, or the Nations Championship. More meaningful games for Australian rugby fans. I think that's what we want um, because you know it's it's a greater opportunity to see the Wallabies playing games, winning them, and um, hopefully lifting some silverware. Yeah, completely agreed. A couple of other quick points as well that we will touch on. Um, the Pacific Nations Cup has been expanded to include both um, Canada and the United States. So that's really positive. Um, hopefully Australia A keep getting a run out in that competition as well, because I think that will only be positive for uh, player development within Australian rugby too. Yeah. Um, and the oh, what was the other thing I was going to say that came out in the announcement, mate? Um, uh, it's what 24 teams. 24 teams. Uh, uh, the, the women's, the women's game. Um, yeah. Can so you touch on that for me? Oh, so there's just been similar to the men's game, um, you know, World Rugby of you know, major uh, calendar reform um, for the for the women's game as well. Um, you know, for for the record, um, I think Sybil Beaumont yesterday described all this stuff as the most significant change uh, to the game uh, since since rugby went professional in '95. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I think with the women's um, off the top of my head, it was about like release windows and that type of thing. So, mm -hmm. but also World Rugby is taking a bigger focus on, um, yeah, basically monitoring uh, the women's game and yeah, the opportunities for growth and development. Um, I think as well. So, yep. it's all a good thing. It's all a good thing. Yep. And again, you look at what's happening with the WXV. Um, there's a real intent here at the moment to grow the game, and as rugby fans, that's what we should want. 
I think. Um, Without a doubt. And I think World Rugby actually does need a bit of credit in particularly the way it's been approaching the support and funding amongst various nations for women's rugby. I know that within the Australian rugby setup, a lot of the positive developments that we've seen within the women's game, you can't actually attribute to RA. Most of them are coming from partnerships with World Rugby directly. And so that's that's really positive. And the WXV, whilst it's going to be incredibly challenging for the Wallaroos when they're going mm. up against entirely professional teams who have um, had a long experience in history of being professional and the conditioning that comes from that, uh, our women will improve from being in the competition and having this high quality opposition. So, mate, I think we've covered all that needs to be covered and we've done it well and we've done it with a bit of insight and hopefully in a pretty enjoyable way. So, mate, thank you. No, no, all good, Ando. Thanks for having me, mate. And, uh, Enjoy the final this week. Like I said, it's uh, everything rugby fans should want, so it uh, should be a good one. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming on. I do want to ask if people want to uh, follow a bit of your writing, maybe uh, check you out on social media, where would they go to find you? Uh, for starters, uh, check out the Rugby Pass website. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a great website, I think. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that's obviously where I do all my writing uh, on there. You can search my name if you want as well i think if you search finn morton rugby pass you'll be able to see me um twitter as well give myself a plug uh, at finn morton five um yeah it's just uh i tweet the occasional thing uh, but rugby's my uh, sorry writing's my forte so i like to ramble on match reports and basically and uh and put out some uh some good garbage i think from my point of view no it's uh i, I did try hard i did try hard well, on that note, hopefully we've produced some good garbage tonight. So, Finn, thank you so much, my friend, and all the best for the final week before you get to come back home to Australian soil. All the best, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it, mate.